1966, in Canada, the country was facing a potential crisis. The problem? Poverty was rising among Canadian retirees and near-retirees, who had suffered a run of extraordinarily difficult economic times. The Great Depression has left one in three Canadian workers out of a job. World War II is finally over, but rising inflation is now causing pensions to be devalued, leaving many seniors out in the cold. Now, millions were struggling. The remedy? Creation of the Canada Pension Plan. Despite this difficult beginning, the plan would eventually prosper, in part because of its investment in alternative markets, including private equity. Decades later, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board would become the world's largest private equity investor. As one of the 10 maple revolutionaries, a term coined by The Economist magazine in 2012, the pension plan was profiting from a new operating model. This new model allowed them to invest in private debt and private equity more efficiently and more cost-effectively, making them the envy of the institutional investing world. Years later, in the spring of 2021, the new head of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board was at a crossroads. This was a difficult time, especially for private market investors who were grappling with the uncertainties surrounding the COVID pandemic. Should the investment board change its approach to owning private market assets? Could it continue to outperform many of its peers while safeguarding the retirement security of 20 million workers and retirees? And what could other private market investors learn from their investment approach? Private markets had evolved considerably, as they would continue to do. How should investors position their private market assets for the future? As investors all over the world faced an incredibly uncertain time, it turns out they could learn quite a bit from those maple revolutionaries. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGIM that untangles the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, we'll talk with two experts on the private markets, including economist Josh Lerner, who published a Harvard Business School case study on the Canada Pension Plan in 2012, and then revisited the topic in 2021. We also talked with the chief operating officer of PGM, Timer Hyatt, who recently authored a paper on how dynamics of private markets have evolved. Revolutionary probably isn't a word that most people would use to describe a Canadian pension plan. But without a doubt, these large institutional investors have ridden the wave of mostly high returns and low volatility across the private markets for the past two decades. With the global economy shifting, will private market investors like the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board need to shift their investment approach? That could have broad implications. Private equity may still be a relatively small market, but it wields a lot of influence on the economy. Here's Josh Lerner. I think what makes private equity so important is that it really is transformative capital. In other words, the companies that get private financing seem to change and evolve very quickly. 
if you look at young companies, so companies that have gone public in the last 25 years, what you see is that subset, the ones which were venture-backed, represent almost 90% of the R&D being done by young companies in the United States. So in some sense, even though private equity is relatively small, the kind of impact it has economically is much more substantial. P. Jim's Timer Hyatt has examined the key players across the private debt and equity markets, including the commercial banking sector, institutional investors, and the companies themselves. His recent paper looks at how their roles have evolved along with market dynamics over the past 10 to 20 years. The global financial crisis triggered a change in all three. Commercial banks started retreating from the riskier parts of financing companies across the world uh, as a result of both regulation and slightly more impaired balance sheets. You had institutional investors looking for yield and return in a much lower interest rate environment and seeing more and more opportunity in financing these companies from where the banks had retreated. And then you had companies themselves that were more and more reluctant to go into public markets, given just the complexity of the quarterly drumbeat of public markets and and sought these new forms of private financing that they found. And the confluence of these three actors doing things differently, commercial banks, companies and institutional investors entering the space has created the new dynamics of private markets. That's also happened, not coincidentally, during a time of increasing deals and deal sizes, kind of like a feedback loop. Essentially, as the direct lending market has expanded over the last 10 years and become just a much larger part of institutional investor allocations and the overall financing of companies around the world, direct lending funds have reached a scale and size where they're not just uh, financing small and mid-market companies, but are also encroaching into much larger companies and financing them, a space that was traditionally owned by public fixed income managers who worked in what is called the broadly syndicated loan market, where multiple public fixed income managers supported uh, the financing of these large companies. So there's a definite blurring of the lines between the two, which for institutional investors means that they need to think uh, in a far more connected manner between their public and private fixed income allocations as the two converge. Most large institutional investors now hold some private market assets, especially after seeing the long-term value of the endowment model, which is known for large allocations to private equity and other alternative investments. But the devil's in the details. Executing on this strategy is a whole other story. Well, I think that in some sense, it was natural for people to look at the kind of success that Yale and some of the other endowments had and to be interested in emulating it. But it's proven to be challenging for many institutions. In particular, what Yale and Harvard had was really a first mover advantage that you know, both of them started investing in venture in the early 1970s. You know, they were in many of the first funds of Bain, Kleiner Perkins and the like. And as a result, they got a seat at the table for the next fund and the next fund and the next fund. The benefits of that first mover advantage are still paying off. 
It's just not feasible for most other investors to try to replicate that approach. Even if you know that the right answer is to invest in a top tier venture group or the like, it doesn't mean that you necessarily can go in and, and duplicate it, right? Because in many cases, the volume of new investors that can be accommodated is so limited. And often, if they are going to bring in new investors, it's going to be somebody that they're convinced is particularly useful for them along some particular dimension. Even in cases where an institution or a family may have abundant financial resources, it still may be very difficult for them to get the kind of attention from the top tier groups, which would allow them to put their money to work. That in a way, almost it seems that the capital providers have to sell themselves saying, our money is more attractive than that of other people, because there's just so much quest for coming into these top tier groups. And that's affected the way investors are getting exposure to private market assets beyond the traditional private market investment funds. We're seeing more ways of investing in private markets that don't involve private equity funds. Some of the manifestations of this have been co-investments where people invest alongside fund managers, often on a no-fee or a low-fee, low-carry basis. Another approach has been to buy secondary interests in funds, to essentially buy used funds after a while. And a third approach has been to actually buy stakes in the funds themselves, or in the management companies of the funds themselves, and essentially say, we will essentially be getting in some sense a, a rebate because part of the fees and carry will be going back to us as investors in this fund management company. We've seen quite a bit of this on the equity side. What about private debt? There's certainly been some of the same dynamics in private debt as well, but I think it's fair to say that this is a younger market in some sense and still in its earlier stages of growing. One thing we have seen is a number of uh, large institutions actually setting up groups to do private debt investing themselves and essentially trying to, in some sense, totally disintermediate the intermediaries by essentially doing these kinds of investments right off their own balance sheet. That's exactly what the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board did, as Josh described in the Harvard Business School case study from 2021. In some sense, when you look at them and their peer group, I think it's fair to say that they really represent something along the spectrum from a traditional limited partner to a traditional general partner or a fund manager. It really has aspects of both of it. And one thing that is clear is that they are certainly being widely emulated around the world by major investors who are interested. Well, traditionally, people look to the endowments such as Yale and said, that's what we'd like our strategy to be. There is increasing interest on the part of both institutional investors as well as family offices in terms of emulating the Canadians and building their investment capabilities in-house, doing a variety of hybrid as well as direct deals themselves. That's looking from a broad portfolio level, going deeper into asset allocation, 
Some industries and sectors may just be better suited for private market exposure compared with the public markets. One other element of the new dynamics of private markets that we've seen arise over the last 10 years is that it makes an increasing sense for many companies across the world to stay private for longer. And we see this particularly in the US and Europe. One reason is that more and more companies have intangibles at the center of their value proposition. Things like R&D, software, intellectual property, data, algorithms. And these intangible assets, as opposed to the old-fashioned physical capital of bricks and mortar, of factories and machines, are far harder for the analysts and the investors in public markets to value. Often, it's about a network effect and scale that takes many years to translate into profitability. That's harder to navigate with the earning cycle of the public markets. And you're seeing companies such as those with intensive intangible assets, a larger share of the global economy, retreating into the private market. That is perfectly synchronized with an era where more and more institutional investor capital is available in private markets, allowing, for example, the median age of U.S. companies at IPO more than doubling uh, to 11 years versus what it was uh, earlier in history. And that's because that private capital now exists for them not to have the need to go to public markets for continued fueling of growth as they had prior to. So for investors to participate in some of the fastest sectors and opportunities in an economy, they do need to play in private markets where many of these opportunities are not just being born, but are spending their entire lives. Are the past two decades an outlier? Or can investors continue to expect private markets to add value as interest rates rise along with inflation and the risk of recession? Josh says history can be our guide. You can look at the experiences, for instance, of Harvard and Yale and other large private capital investors and say, these guys have been basically doing a strategy for 35 years that's involved putting a lot of money into equity, increasingly into illiquid asset managers who are very involved in the governance of the firms that they invest in. Year after year, there has been, by and large, outperformance of the various public market benchmarks. But on the other hand, you might look at that and say, that's not really 35 annual observations. That's really one observation, because certainly since the early 1990s, we've been in the era of declining interest rates, by and large, and by and large, rising equity prices. And that combination has been extremely favorable to private market investors. According to Timer, we might see the spread widen among asset managers. The rising tide of interest rates and inflation isn't likely to lift all boats. I certainly think that the more turbulent times we live in with inflation risk, interest rate risk, many countries still coping with zero COVID, will create a market where managing risk and understanding volatility will be key. And I think over the last decade, cocoon from, in some senses, market reality from the large quantitative easing programs of central banks around the world, all assets, private and public, have floated up comfortably cocooned. 
and what is going to happen in 2022 and over the next two, three, five years is a separation and divergence between asset managers and investors who understand how to navigate a far rockier period and assets and asset managers who haven't had the experience of managing multiple cycles or are caught up in sectors that might have had bubble-like characteristics, such as parts of the cyber currency world. And signs of bubbles can pop up in unexpected places, even vet clinics. Private capital started buying up veterinary practices more than a decade ago. What's the attraction? Strong non-cyclical demand, consistent cash flows, and low downside risk. Private capital entered the healthcare industry decades ago. Vet clinics have similar appeal, but with the added bonus of no third-party payers or complicated billing systems. That's led the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to take notice, recently blocking some deals deemed anti-competitive. Is this a sign of the new private market dynamics or just excess funds looking for continued deal flow? Time will tell. But even as we are heading into a more challenging market environment overall, some corners, like private debt, may have advantages. By and large, most of the loans on the private debt side are made as variable rate loans. So if we move into an area where inflation continues to rise and interest rates increase accordingly. The private debt guys can often be more flexible than the bond market or even, in some cases, bank loans that are done at fixed rates. It's also the case that, in some sense, you can say private debt, because they are a little bit away from some of the regulatory pressures that characterize the bank loan market and so forth, can perhaps be a little bit more flexible in terms of responding in these conditions. But certainly, you know, one natural question is what is investor demand really going to look like? If we are indeed in an era where bonds are going to be paying double digits, it may be that investors don't feel the necessity to put capital in private debt funds. Liquidity is also a growing concern, with the Fed entering quantitative tightening and some pockets of vulnerability showing up beyond the U.S. How should private market investors think about the potential for increasing liquidity risk? With fiscal and monetary policy pushing in opposite directions, this could be top of mind for investors for the next several years. We are going to have liquidity crunches across the portfolio. And I would say it's not going to be limited to the private portfolio. Many investors understand that that is the less liquid, locked up part of the portfolio. But it'll really be about two things. First, are there any liquidity or illiquidity stresses building up in the public portfolios as some markets might start malfunctioning? And how are you going to use your liquid public portfolio to handle your overall liquidity needs? And second, absolutely, I think there's an opportunity for investors to get far more sophisticated and far more granular in understanding the liquidity needs of their portfolio. And we spent a lot of time at PGM really trying to break down the cash flow streams in private assets to give investors that insight into what is the true liquidity versus the needs that they have from their portfolios. On the other hand, there may be some upside to the rising cost of capital. 
especially if zombie companies are no longer able to attract more capital than their financial prospects deserve. Certainly the environment of higher rates and the fact that we are no longer in a big comfort blanket from central banks around the world will mean that some of the over-exuberant bubbles that have developed in, in many sectors are going to be burst. And that's true in both public, but certainly also private markets. One that comes to mind is the fact that venture capitalists leaned quite heavily into cryptocurrencies. And while there are many practical examples of the blockchain, such as tokenization and smart contracts that we think have lots of value, there's certainly many other use cases of the blockchain where there's really no concrete benefit that can be attributed to them or where currencies add no value to the financial or monetary system, where I think we'll find that when the tide goes down, that there will be bodies littered on the shores. So I think it is absolutely a time for investors to navigate uh, the environment quite carefully. And I think very much to rely on experts and investors who've navigated multiple credit cycles and down cycles, which is a very different environment from what we've seen for the last 10 years. There is a natural rhythm to the economic cycle. What goes up must come down, eventually. One way to think about it is the phrase that's often been used of the cleansing power of recessions, that during these downturns, whether you think about the dot-com bust in the early 2000s or the uh, global financial crisis later in the decade, they often have what might be regarded as a sort of bit of a cleansing effect that you know the groups that are pursuing strategies that don't really work or just barely getting by uh, frequently encounter difficulties and exit the market. And the groups that, on the other hand, are um, having pretty viable strategies end up having less competition and thriving once there's the exit of the underpowered competitors. So I think that, in a way, that suggests room for optimism. Similarly, some of the academic research would suggest that in periods of high interest rates, or at least in terms of high spread, when the kind of debt used in buyouts is relatively more expensive, not surprisingly, you tend to see less debt being used in transactions. But, but the result is that the valuations that the deals get done at are frequently lower. And in many cases, it turns out the returns are better because they're buying in at a lower price. In the meantime, even long-term investors need to have access to tactical opportunities for the shorter term. The changing environment we now have for all assets, including private assets, I think brings a, a few opportunities to the forefront that investors should be evaluating. First, a lot of direct lending in private credit markets has, has been driven by the private equity sponsors. As sponsor activity slows down, as private equity transactions slow down, do they want to look at direct lending that is originated directly with companies rather than sponsor-driven? So bifurcating that universe, both separating out Johnny-come-latelys to the private credit space from those who've navigated multiple credit cycles, because we'll almost inevitably need to navigate more, and those who have both direct lending originations rather than relying just on private equity flow will be critical. And beyond the direct private markets? There's also be a need to look at secondary markets, 
which are much deeper and richer than before, and understanding how private equity and real estate secondary markets are part of the toolkit that investors have to navigate these markets. And there'll certainly be opportunities given some of the stresses we're going to see as central banks navigate the next uh, 24 months for opportunities in secondary markets that could be quite attractive. It's important also for investors when they think about private markets, not just to limit themselves to private credit and private equity, but we see tremendous opportunities in elements of the real estate space that includes real estate debt, and it includes areas such as data centers and some of the technology-driven real estate needs that we think will remain robust through the market cycles and stresses we see in front of us. And it also means looking quite seriously at uh, infrastructure, including renewable infrastructure and digital infrastructure, both on the debt and equity side. While the definition of an attractive deal has certainly broadened over the last couple of decades, we should all keep one thing in mind. Change is the only constant in life. Investors who can take advantage of the shifting dynamics, as the Maple Revolutionaries have done, will be well-placed to continue to find new sources of return. Thanks to our experts, Timer Hyatt and Josh Lerner, for their insights on the private markets. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor. In the final episode of Season 2, we'll look at tail risk and black swan events. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MG PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.